We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Uh, We are joined for part two of a series which began two years ago. Uh, Sometimes listeners or in interviews, people ask me what my favorite episode of Perpetual Chess is. And for a while, I was coy, or maybe I would um, list like seven different episodes, which could be true. But recently in an interview, I copped to the fact that my favorite episode of all is number 177 with our guest today, where he took us behind the scenes as the prep, as the head, the lead trainer for Grandmaster Announced Prep Team. And in that particular podcast from May of 2020, he discussed the decisive game of the 2010 World Championship. Um, What we're going to discuss today is the match that took place two years later. Our guest, Grandmaster Peter Hein-Nielsen, will be taking us through the entire World Championship match of Anand versus Gelfand in Moscow, 2012. 
Again, it recently celebrated its 10-year birthday, so Grandmaster Peter Heinielsen was feeling nostalgic and graciously offered to come on the podcast to discuss it. A bit more information about our guest, even though I suspect a lot of you know of him. He is five-time champion of Denmark. He's been ranked comfortably in the top 50 players in the world, uh, peak rating of 2,700. But these days, he's a full-time trainer and world-class opening theoretician. He was the head of Grandmaster Viswanathan Anand's world championship team, and now is the head of Grandmaster Magnus Carlsen's training team. He's also a chess podcaster. You can hear him every week on the Chicken Chess Club podcast with Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson and Laurent Fressonnet as they riff on and discuss chess news. I tune in right when it comes out, basically, every Wednesday. He is running for FIDE Vice President with Grandmaster Andre Baraspolitz. And we are recording here on July 6, 2022. And no, he will not be telling us if Grandmaster Magnus Carlsen will be defending his title. So without further ado, let's welcome back Grandmaster Peter Hein Nielsen. Peter, welcome back. Thanks a lot. And thanks for the kind but long introduction. Yes, yes. A lot to cover just to give context for listeners, but I'm so excited for this. I love uh, hearing this chess history and you're in such a unique position to share so many insights that other people can only speculate about or get secondhand. Now, before we get to your recollections, Peter, my first question was just generally about the sort of uh, concept of of memory and episodic memory in particular, meaning you're not recalling actual like opening lines or facts, but you're recalling events that happened in your life and different people have different ability to do that. So how good is your episodic memory, Peter? I think generally it's very good. Um, I think actually it, it's very good. But of course, um, well, towards chess contents uh, and, and these matches, I would sometimes have to recheck it, for instance, uh, and go to the history files uh, of chess space to see which day were we debating such and such. But, uh, I mean, at least my, my own uh, understanding of it is that I have a, a strong memory. But I think that goes for all chess players or all very strong chess players. I think Kasparov uh, debated it in some very old video that uh, memory is a very essential part of um, of strong chess players simply because, well, maybe not memory in a general sense, but memory in a, in a kind of weird sense where we will, I mean, let's say, well, remember themes and be able to sort of use them probably and such. I also... I tend to be able to remember that, uh, well, this opening idea, this diagram in a chess book would be placed at a certain place or something like that. I remember when uh, I was a kid, there was a, a lecture by, by Ben Glassen at uh, the chess school I would ask, and he said that, well, go and get me this informant. I don't remember the number, but it was pink or something like that. So you will remember things by weird details, and uh, they tend out to be surprisingly often right. But uh, I might easily misremember what... Uh, I was doing yesterday, for instance. So it, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, any misremembered details will add to the, um, <laughs> add to the mythology. But I, I did review uh, Mindmaster by Viswanathan Anand and the, the Anand Files, um, which I also enjoyed. So I, I was not there, was far from there, but hopefully can help uh, jog your memory in a few key moments. Um, and one other question 
regarding memory, Peter, is something like the 2012 World Championship match and all the World Championship matches that you've been a part of. Um, of course, uh, Anand describes them as a bit of a blur because you're often, the trainers in particular, are often sort of in a room just in front of computers the whole time. But do you feel like you have a heightened memory of those moments as opposed to sort of like a sort of more mundane uh, day at home? Uh, absolutely, it's uh, well to call them life-defining moments is uh, is too strong, but it's career-defining moments, and it's typically moments under incredible stress, and it's also typically things that you are either very proud of or somewhat embarrassed of, uh, depending on uh, the, the quality of your work and such. So, I think there's a lot of details that you remember extremely well uh, in in that way. But um, well, let, let's see. It might turn out uh, embarrassingly because uh, opposite to you. Uh, well, I also wanted to prepare a bit, but I couldn't find the books that you mentioned and such. So uh, <laughs> I, I will do it uh, uh, by memory, but I hope that um, that sort of um, my memory will be good. Else I will have to do the, the Timan defense. I think at some point in, in New and Chess, Timan told a beautiful anecdote and uh, a reader wrote in and said that, well, uh, you know, there were some factual errors in that. And Timan replied back, Yes, but I still think my story was better. So well, right, we're, yeah. we're, we'll see. Well, they say, yeah, they say in like the science of memory with episodic memory in in particular, you should think of it not as like a save function, like as an event happens and then you remember it, but as like a save as function. Mm -hmm. So an event happens, but then every time you call it up in your memory, you run the risk of changing it. Mm -hmm. um, so there could have been some of that at work, but the, definitely, Peter, in our prior conversation, I was I was extremely impressed with your recall of those critical events. Uh, leading up to the decisive game in 2010. So I'm not too worried, personally. I understand. But also, I mean, the nice thing with chess things is that in chess base, there is this function that called uh, uh, history folders, which saves the games you are looking at uh, just as a backup. So basically, for all these matches, you can go in and you can see that you looked at all these things and such. For instance, I think uh, when one of the books were out, I was sort of puzzled because some of the statements was contradicting my memory. So I went into the history folder uh, and uh, at least that ex exact one I, I checked uh, confirmed what I remembered and such. So, there, I mean, this is actually the interesting thing with these more modern World Championship matches, that there is a lot of historical material if, uh, well, if you have access to the files. You can actually do like a real historian and go into the archives and see that, okay, on that day, uh, we were looking at uh, 200 uh, files or something like that in, in this order. So, I mean, there is uh, room for some chess archaeology in, in that sense. Okay. Well, without without further prelude, let's get to it. So let's get to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the match was starting in May of 2012 mm -hmm. and you guys convened in Bonn, uh, or sorry, not in Bonn, in Germany, um, elsewhere in Germany where Avisvanathan uh, Anand lived. Correct. We were in uh, in Bad Soten in, uh, in, in Germany, which is a small, uh, well, Spa town, well, Bad uh, is referring to that in, in the German language. In Bad Soden, where Anand has a, a flat, and um, well, we were basically four seconds. Uh, me, uh, Rustam Kasimjanov, uh, Surya Ganguly, and Radik Wojtasek. And um, we met on the 15th of January, or actually maybe um, the others came a couple of days earlier, because I was playing the Danish League, um, and... Um, 
it's always tricky arriving later than the others because then the opening choices might be made before you showed up. So that, that mistake I will try not to make again. But <laughs> the general point I want to get to is that we started on the 15th of, um, of, of January and I think we ended on the 15th of April and I only had a small break uh, of visiting my girlfriend in um, in Lithuania for like three, four days. And then I played Bundesliga. Else, uh, I stayed in Bad Soden for, for three months and just worked on, on chess uh, nonstop. Um, wow. Yeah, that was yeah, completely, completely insane. Um, yeah. But uh, that's how we did it, yeah. Yeah, it sounds intense. And uh, a quick quote from Grandmaster Anand in... in um, Mindmaster, he writes, it was our third match for the world championships and months of being locked up together had turned us into a jaded, vapid unit. Unlike in Bonn in 2008, when our work was fresh and brimming with novelty, this match felt like an obligation, a burden we wanted to offload. Does that ring true? Yeah, I probably have a, a bit of a different flavor to it, but the conclusion is more or less the same, I would say. Um, I think... I think none of us thought it was particularly a good idea to um, to do it like three months in a row, but probably some, uh, well, what you call it logistics with planning, uh, made it difficult to do otherwise. There could be, you know, a couple of tournaments, there might be Christmas and stuff like this. Somehow it was the only way to do it. And, um, well, we had this tendency to prepare a lot. And three months sounds indeed like an awful lot, but maybe Nipomniachi was doing the same for... For the previous match, it's just Magnus who does it differently. So somehow we've gotten used to this idea that you can prepare less, perhaps. But uh, for us, probably three months total was normal. It was just that we did it in, in one go. Um, and of course, I think also, well, this three-month thing contributed a lot to that the team split up uh, afterwards. I mean, this was a, a tough experience. I basically remember it uh, like three phases for myself that... Uh, the first month was rather good. Um, of course, there was opening problems. I remember specifically one week where we had to find ideas against the Queen's Gambit declined. It was completely hopeless. No one could come up with anything. And it was basically, well, you work from morning to evening. Uh, nothing happens. No ideas materializes and such. It was generally pretty depressive. But the first month I still thought was rather good. And I think one indicator of that was that for myself, well, I came there in not too great physical shape, but I was running each morning before breakfast. And I think uh, around after a month, um, I was running 10 kilometers uh, in the morning before breakfast. This is quite an achievement for me, and I felt in, in great shape. But then for the second month, it started collapsing. I think it was, well, it was too long, it was too dark. Also, well, you can hear it's January, February, it's winter months and such. So I think basically my shape managed to, to peak and then fall back again. I re recall that I would end up... Uh, when we finished work in the evening, I would go to the, well, sort of candy machine, buy chips, buy chocolate and sit and eat and watch series and do no sports, whatever, and basically fall into almost some kind of depressed uh, state. And then in the third month, things would uh, kind of improve again. But, um, well, there's no doubt that this was psychologically extremely tough. I forgotten if this was the camp that uh, Jonathan Rousen uh, met us, it's, uh, or maybe it was the, the previous uh, previous one. But the point point stays was that um, I think uh, in the first matches, let's say on on, on a free day, we would just uh, hang out together and do some positive things. While now, I think on a free day, we just didn't want to see anybody and such. And I think a lot of it is connected to that. Um, 
we basically had an incredibly tough uh, work routine. There was a lot of discipline, and I think if you read some of the books, it might, might to some extent be me who has uh, implemented that. But that, well, we will meet after breakfast, and basically we will work on chess till after after midnight. Um, well, of course, with breaks for eating, for going for walks, for doing some sports, but basically nonstop uh, work like that. Uh, it doesn't mean we didn't have a lot of fun, that we will not listen to music or, or watch some comedies and so on and so forth. But uh, it's it's very long work weeks and also very monotonous. And uh, also it was difficult to sort of find ideas at times and such. So um, I think all of us thought that these three months, they didn't pan out right in, in, in any way. And I think, uh, well, now we sort of, at least uh, me and Kasim Djanov uh, left the team. But I think even before that, we had some kind of evaluation, thinking that next time we really need to do this uh, different because, uh, well, this was just too much. This was too crazy. And uh, I mean, this idea that we will get a lot of work done and it will be helpful, uh, it didn't materialize. And also we spent so much time on it. Uh, maybe it was good for tournaments later, but uh, this was, uh, I think, uh, it was an interesting experience. But I think everybody understood that this is something that you, you do maximum once in your life. Okay, yeah. And it's funny, you should mention sort of the idea of you being um, a disciplinarian. One of the times I interviewed Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson, it was after the Anon Files came out. And he mentioned that he really enjoyed the book. But he did say that like his experience working under you didn't really jibe with the, with the way you were sometimes described as a disciplinarian. So do, do you think that your approach changed in the years where uh, Jan joined Carlson's team and subsequent years? Yeah, also... I don't necessarily subscribe to this idea that I'm sort of a formally a, a leader and such. I think in the, well, in the Anand team, I became more like a hop in the way that uh, a huge part of my job is uh, collecting everybody's files so that uh, everybody work independently, but they send their stuff to me who then gather it in a, in a whole database. And uh, while maybe it sounds like drag and drop, there is more work in that uh, in some sense. Um, so like that, maybe I became the one who was in charge of, of everything and such. But I think especially for Bonn, I was very ambitious. It was the first time I felt a lot of responsibility. Later, perhaps with experience, you try to do things differently and such. I think also it's kind of different matches. With Ma uh, Against Kramnik, we thought preparation will play an incredibly important role, which is quite did. While in other matches, for instance, with Magnus later, we think, okay, we just have to get the guy to play chess. So somehow um, it's more about finding some creative ideas and getting players out of books and such. So I think it also becomes very match-specific in a way. But uh, there is definitely some truth in it, uh, I think, in the, in the earlier matches. But um, maybe later it's uh, changed like that. And it's, it's nice to Gustav uh, to say like that. But I think also, well, with, with Magnus, it's a... It's quite a different uh, attitude uh, in a way. And I think also, well, we made a conscious choice. And I think I'm very affected of this uh, 2012 experience in the way that I thought, okay, overdoing things actually probably doesn't work. I mean, the conclusion was also when we start talking about the, the match is that uh, this work we did for three months. I mean, most of us, most of it has absolutely no relevance whatsoever because uh, we guessed incredibly poorly. So basically, well, you understand, you sit there, you think, okay, I've spent three months of my life. It was pretty cold and dark in Germany. We didn't, and uh, it had absolutely no no relevance. That somehow uh, is not a good feeling, I, I would say. Uh, still, still interesting from a chess perspective and such, but uh, but, uh, but no. But um, if I'm enforcing people to work all the time, I think uh, people who knows me well is that uh, no, not really. But okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, in re- in reviewing the books, getting ready for this interview, I I often think of the Kashimjanov quote about like o- opening preparation for a world championship match is like an iceberg where you can only see the tip and ninety nine percent of it is, is submerged. You definitely that definitely comes across in the sort of blow by blow. Of course, of course. I mean, it's it's heavily like that, and this is probably necessary for matches because, uh, well, you you have this clash of two teams that has been working for so long. And uh, only so little materializes. But basically, you are aware that your opponent has worked so incredibly hard as well. So you try to not let them ambush you. And you try to, of course, somewhat ambush them. But then at least you try to figure out that if both players, uh, let's say, tries to have a balanced strategy, how will things pan out then and so uh, and such. But, um, well, as you said... Um, if we're not going to go into if Magnus has played his last match or not, then at least I should pretend I, wa- I want to keep some secrets, right? <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and how did you feel? So Boris Gelfand, of course, legendary classical player, super solid, um, you know, been at the top for decades, um, but was ranked number 20 in the world at the time of this match, or at least approximately number 20. Um, but uh, Anand writes in Mindmaster about just feeling like his skills were deteriorating at the time of the match. So what other than just sheer fatigue and maybe a bit of overexposure to your fellow teammates, how did you feel about your oppo- about Anand's opponent and about sort of uh, Anand's prospects as you guys convened, Peter? Uh, well, two different things. Uh, so let's start talking about Gelfand. I mean, well... <sighs> I mean, generally, I think getting to play Gelfand in a World Championship match should be seen as an incredibly good pairing in terms of equity of winning. Um, it was surprising Gelfand won, and uh, Gelfand had also done well in the 2007 World Championship tournament, where he was uh, sort of second uh, after Vichy. But generally, he was not c- considered among the, the top five or maybe even the top ten players in the world. So you can argue getting that um, could be seen as a gift, which is perhaps was to some extent. But it was also very stressful in the way that, um, well, you understand, we were very proud of what we had achieved till then. That, um, well, Vichy had won the 2017 World Championship, but then also in 2008 and 2010, he has won his matches. Now suddenly it felt like, uh, you know, well, it would be possible to sort of uh, reverse the story. Should he actually lose to someone who is uh, the same age as him and uh, seem to be considerably ro- uh, worse? It would look uh, rather bad in a way. But that probably also explains where we were to some extent mentally, that, um, well, there has been enough wins in a way. I think, um, well, I mean, that Rishi would just keep on winning matches like this was not seen as so likely at the time. I think uh, we always went to the match believing that there was a good chance, but that it became so many, of course, was not uh, the storyline that was uh, predicted. I mean, I think uh, some people were telling me that, okay, when he won in 2007, this was really his last chance to win a world championship, which uh, luckily was completely wrong. But uh, I think no one, even Vichy or us in the team, had expected that it would be as many as it was uh, in that sense. So, well, I guess that was, I mean, let's say when he actually lost to Magnus, it felt completely natural that would happen. Losing to Gelfand would feel weird because Vichy had always been dominating him in his career. Not dominating fully, but always seen as a stronger player. Then switching to Vichy himself... um, 
I think we had a mental problem in the team that we have always seen Vichy as a basically a god or something like this, like the best player in the world. You know, he played perfect. Remember in Bonn, he was just calculating incredibly, playing so well and so forth. And I think at some point we started realizing that, uh, well, maybe we have basically fallen in love with uh, what he was rather than thinking about what he actually is at the moment. And um, that, of course, was... um, uh, Well, it's difficult. How do you handle these kind of things, right? You cannot exactly... Well, no, maybe we could have a discussion with Vichy about it and such, but I will also be uncomfortable in, in a way. I think uh, me and Kasim Djanov decided to talk uh, at a hotel room uh, at some point after training, and we spoke for it about for 15 minutes, and Kasim was talking about that, well, you know, I'm actually doing incredibly well when I play in, in training games with him, which I'm very proud of, but maybe it's not so good and such, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that which is shape is bad. And I think also Wishy was a bit affected that uh, things was not going as, as well as, the, as they used to for him in a way and such. And um, there's nothing unnatural in that. I mean, uh, he was, uh, n- well, he was not young at the, uh, at the time for a world championship uh, candidate and such. So it, it felt natural. But also, well, I think Wishy had done it so many times that also the inspiration was a bit, bit gone in a way. And there I think... Well, for Gelfand, it was completely different. I understand that they are both the same age. But for Gelfand, this was the first time. And it was incredibly unexpected. So he seemed to come with a lot of positive energy and such. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but at least it, it took a while. <laughs> yeah, it did. And I want to share a couple more quotes from Mindmaster. Because, yeah, Vichy, is, it sounds quite dour, his mindset going into the match. He writes... I felt like a skydiver free-falling face down with no promise of a parachute opening up to save, save him from a gruesome end. And then later he writes, When I look back at it now, it strikes me that I had stopped growing as a chess player. A younger crop of players was coming up with a fresh set of ideas and I was slow off the blocks. Um, yeah, that was also the storyline at the time, right? That uh, I think, uh, well, Kasparov, for instance, made a bit fun of that it was number X against number Y in the world playing a world championship match and such, right? I think at that point, uh, Magnus was already uh, the, the highest rated player in, in the world, I'm pretty sure, and such, right? Yeah, He'd he just was. chosen not yet to enter the world championship cycle. So, I mean, you can understand the pressure on these guys, but... The difference was for for Gelfand. This was, uh, I mean, uh, a chance he didn't expect that he always dreamt of. So, of course, he's taken, well, he was incredibly motivated. While for Vichy, it was uh, not the reverse. We were definitely motivated. But I think also that we had a three-month camp was trying to force ourselves to be motivated. And to, to some extent, it had the effect of almost breaking us uh, in a way. But, um, well, that's how we chose to, to, to do it and how we always did it. It's also, I think we got to realize that while we perhaps were aware of it, it's extremely difficult to change habits that brought you success. Um, it's not that it's superstitious or anything like this, but it's just that uh, you get so painted by your positive memories that you stick with uh, these things and that uh, you might just have been lucky or something like this. It's, it's hard to to force yourself to admit and then you'll more rather think that you were, you did something clever and then you'll repeat it again in a way. I mean, uh, what well, is a typical phase, uh, phrase that you shouldn't try and win the new war like you won the old war, but it's a very, it's, it's easy to fall into these kind of habits anyway, I would say. Yeah. And speaking of 
how to win the war, did you guys have a sort of overarching match strategy as you uh, got together and talked it over? No, I wouldn't say that we had that particularly and such, but of course we had some opening strategies and things like that, and probably also some idea of that. Um, well, Bishi is better in calculations uh, and such. I think, um, um, well, before Kramnik, it was clear that uh, we thought maybe openings, we would be quite uh, sort of equally matched, but that Vichy would be better in dynamic positions. While with Topalov, we thought that opening battles we should avoid, but Vichy is the better player. Against Gelfand, I think we thought Vichy is just better all round uh, in a way. So then it becomes maybe like uh, the situation with Magnus, that if we can create situations where they get to play, the better player will eventually prevail. So I think that was mainly our strategy in that sense. But it's not like we had um, heavily sort of... Um, Started Gelfand's uh, sort of strategies and such to to extract things. Also, it's a bit weird that uh, when you play Gelfand, well, you have a whole career, but he's not played any kind of world championship matches, so you lack a bit of information how he behaves in this kind of situations. So, it was strange for us in the way that we thought um, Gelfand perhaps is wish his age, but he's still some kind of mystery. Eventually, obviously, you guys go to Moscow. Now, Peter, is there is there anything else you feel um, we should review before we, we actually get to the match? No, I mean, I think I said that um, the first mo- third month of the camp actually started to become better in a way. I, the, the, the strange, fond memory I had is that together with Kasim Djanov, we decided, and this sounds completely insane, right? We have been in Barsod. This is the third training camp. Uh, so third match we prepared together for. But we have more spent maybe, I don't know, nine months, a year in Bad Soden together. Um, only in the third month of the third match, we get this idea. Why don't we go to Frankfurt one evening just to relax and get a bit away of everything? We have never, ever done that before. But on the on that, with like two, mo- two weeks left, we decided on the free day, why don't we go to Frankfurt and watch a movie? And uh, well, this was basically breaking news for us. No one has ever done that in our team. It's uh, it's completely impossible to, for me to explain why we chose to keep this kind of camp mentality, where the only thing you see is uh, your teammates and uh, and computers. But we went to Frankfurt, and suddenly we thought, okay, wow, there is uh, there is people, there is uh, light, there is a cinema and such. I mean, even I think the. The cinema actually broke down, so we had to sit for 45 minutes and wait till they, they fixed the, 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 the device to display it. But we just basically had fun and had a bit to eat and such. And um, I think the others didn't join us, and they thought it was a bit strange. But it just somehow, for me, paints a picture of that. Basically, you try to completely shut yourself in. You completely immerse yourself in these things. But um, then later, you think, why did we do it like that? But uh, I think, again, for the first match, we were so incredibly motivated that we didn't think in these directions. But later, we did. But somehow, yeah, I think me and Kasim thought uh, later, okay, this we should have done every Sunday. This is a great way to get your mind off and such. But uh, this, uh, I mean, it's mainly that the thought didn't appear. That is the, st- the striking thing. We were so, so obsessed with uh, with chess uh, and such. Um, there was a... But I remember also we played Bundesliga some, some weeks before and uh, had a short break from the training camp. And that also felt like a nice break uh, and, and such. But um, I think generally 
the, what I recall from this this training camp is mainly tiredness. Also, I think uh, when I, I mentioned I visited my girlfriend in Lithuania, but basically when I came there, I slept for like fourteen hours. Um, it was a it was a tough time, and it sort of um, I think we didn't come with that many good memories, which meant also that we came to Moscow in a rather tired state. And uh, well, that's basically an uh, unforgivable sin in, in many ways. And I think also it's obvious uh, it affected Vichy. You saw that uh, he was uh, not sort of speaking of it as a very pleasant thing. So I think um, the training camp and uh, the first uh, more than half of the match in Moscow is things that we are not uh, that proud of. But then luckily, luckily when it really mattered, somehow, well, you know, um, we, we got, got there in the end. Okay, listeners, we are headed to Moscow, but first we're going to take a break and we will uh, be right back. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com, the leading chess education platform. Chessable, of course, uses its proprietary move trainer technology, which has space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, basic end games, all of which it will quiz you on repeatedly until you have it down cold. They have courses both for free and for purchase. One of their newest includes the Beginner's 1D4 Repertoire by popular and entertaining YouTube commentator and streamer. I am Andres Toth. So if you're just looking to get your feet wet in an opening, it is a great uh, intro. And of course, they also have intermediate classics like Endgame Strategy and tons of advanced opening courses that you can check out for free or for purchase at chessable.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. So, Peter, I'd like to hear about the general mindset in Moscow, but I'm also curious as someone who's obviously played very high level chess, although not personally, you haven't played for a world championship personally, but how do your nerves as a trainer for a world championship contender compare to your nerves when you're going to play in a big match yourself? How do they compare? They are different. Um, I think now I've gotten used to it and such, but it depends, of course, um, well, on the situation and the match and things like that. But I think in 2013, I, I played my last tournament. And I recall it was a lesson in how stressful it is actually to play yourself. So probably it's much calmer in many ways to be a second. Um, I mean, maybe I'm just extremely spoiled that I'm the second of Magnus. So you get to, to win quite often and uh, <laughs> losing is a very rare occurrence. But um, uh, being a second is stressful in a different way. But of course, it's very stressful. For instance, of course, uh, what's incredibly stressful is the opening phase because, well, you know, uh, you have worked on this for really a long time. And uh, as you say, I'm, I'm the one responsible for perhaps the structure of the preparation. So uh, if something happens that we hadn't expected or there's a huge hole or something like that, um, well, that, of course, is uh, f- would feel very bad. Uh, not to, to mention that you could lose your job and things like that, for instance. Um, 
how it started in uh, in Sofia. I mean, well, imagine we worked for a very, very long time preparing Vichy's openings for the World Championship match, and uh, he loses in two hours with, with Black, right? I mean, it's not supposed to happen. It should basically be impossible. And it's not like Topalov played something very new. He just played what he almost always did and uh, well we completely collapsed there well things like that happens but this phase of course is extremely nervous um, it can sound a bit selfish that you are more nervous about um, the opening phase rather than the actual result but I think it's just logical because that's what you're responsible for in a way but um, well of course you're nervous also I mean it sounds like nine years too early to talk about Magnus's match, right? If we do a 10-year delay. But, mm. I mean, game six from the last match, you know, it's a two and a half, two and a half, and it swings back and forth uh, at some point in, in time pressure. Of course, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not capable to sleep, but if you play, maybe it's worse. On the other hand, sometimes when you play, you're so much into it that um, you don't really feel it. You, you just play. But I still think it's... It's quite more stressful to be um, uh, a, a player than a second. But for instance, once I did the commentary for for the candidates tournaments together with my now wife, and uh, that was a much much less stressful experience. I mean, uh, well, this idea that uh, there is no result, you don't have to be well prepared and so, uh, to that to that extent, um, was much less stressful. So I will say that. Uh, it's stressful, but in a different way. Perhaps also being used to it uh, helps. I guess also that's one of the what's the reasons. Uh, I mean, that Magnus invited to me, me to to his team that uh, he wanted someone who has been in this situation a lot of times, so that the the stress level would be, would be less. Because uh, well, you get more and more used to it. But of course, uh, it's uh, it's never going to feel trivial, and it shouldn't. Makes sense. And when you make your way to the tournament venue, um, I know it, it was written in the book, uh, of course, in recent years with Team Magnus, uh, part of the team likes to decamp to Thailand or similar places, but I believe that everyone came to Moscow, all yes. four trainers, is that correct? For sure. I mean, uh, we were all going to, to Moscow together. Um, well, uh, I think uh, Gajewski, good friend of... Um, uh, Wojtasek, but now, uh, I mean, well, he used to be later become uh, Vicious uh, main coach, was helping us a bit online, but but it's correct that in in, in, in Team Vichy, he would always bring us four seconds to, to the venue. And, uh, well, that meant that uh, we could have sort of sessions together, all of us. Vichy would basically come to the workroom and... and and uh, and work with us uh, and uh, well we would have uh, drills where we would repeat lines so to check if you remembered it and discuss things uh, and and so on and so forth but but you are right that uh, well we had a a very nice workroom where it's basically four or if wish it was there five guys sitting there with with computers and um, we would basically draw the the curtains so we could see it's not get distracted but uh, we had a Absolutely stunning uh, view. I remember that um, uh, someone, uh, Eric van Rehm, was, was, was there and he was doing a blog where he put up this picture of the sort of uh, the view to, the, to the, the Kremlin and the Red Square at night. And I thought, wow, that looks ins insanely beautiful. And I asked him, where did you take it? He said, well, try and draw the curtains. And I did. So he's, <laughs> yes. he's taken in our workroom. But so we had uh, a spectacular view there. I think also when 
at some point when they had the 9th of May parades, um, we were looking out of the windows and they called from the hotel and said, no, close the windows. We, we, they cannot have people for security re- reasons sort of looking out like that. So um, because, well, I don't know, maybe they were afraid we would shoot or something like that. But um, um, so, I mean, we had generally excellent surroundings, but um, when sort of the stakes get, get high, basically you just draw the curtains and start working like that. So basically we have four or five guys sitting with our laptops uh, working and uh, analyzing chess and and discussing things together. And Peter, it was the same team as the prior world championship team, but is there any thought of trying to like not be spotted? Like in the recent candidates, everyone's talking about which trainer is with which player. Was there any of that dynamic at work with, uh, with Anand's team in 2012? Um, Well, I think for instance, Leko was helping us uh, in in a camp before the match, and he was also there during commentary and came and and helped a little bit now and then. I mean, such things we wouldn't uh, release, but I think um, it it is less so because in these days where you didn't really work as much online as you do now, they had to be there physically. So that we would not hide. But of course. Um, well, you would have some kind of external help, and that you would uh, very much hide. For instance, uh, during this match, uh, we got help from first um, Michael Adams and then later McShane. And, uh, well, they were, they were just sending us stuff online. This, of course, we would keep completely secret. Um, so I think uh, ideally we would like to keep it secret, but I think at some point, well, Wishy said that, well, Nilsson is coming. He's too big to keep a secret uh, <laughs> anyway, but that goes for all of us. I mean... Well, information you cannot hide. You can just as well volunteer to give uh, is our, was our policy, at least. Yeah, uh, it makes sense. And on the topic of the testing Vichy's memory in various openings, um, what was the methodology for that? Were you using any flashcards? Were you using a board or just telling him moves? Like, how did, how did that work? No, we were using a board. Um, for some reason, I have a picture from... 2010 in Sofia of our workroom and it's basically a, a room that is in a complete mess. You see computers, you see uh, paper towels, empty bottles and stuff like this and you see a lot of heavy computers. But in the background you can see there is actually a chessboard which is kind of unusual uh, for our training camps. But this was not a training camps, it was a match. So I think like one hour before we would uh, set up uh, positions on, on, on the board and basically drill uh, Vichy for like uh, half an hour over the the most important details and make sure that he remembers these uh, things and such. So that w- that we would do to quite some some extent. Uh, it's completely different from how how things are, are done with Magnus, I would say. But that's uh, how we how we did it with with, with Wishy. So there would be like, um, well, he would meet us in the morning, uh, talk about with us what we've been analyzing at night, and um, then I think after the morning session he will go and and you know uh, maybe have a nap, shower, these kind of things, relax. And then come maybe one and a half hour to one hour before the game and do sort of the last drills, uh, depending on, on the current situation. In, in Well, if he would be worried about some detail, he would come earlier and so on and so forth, right? But um, he would definitely set at a board. We will ask him questions and we will have an idea what to take him through. But of course, he might have some questions himself and we will try to, to, to answer, answer those um, and are you able to say how how you work differently with Magnus when helping him memorize lines? No, but Magnus is generally he's much more on his own. Uh, so I think it's uh, well, it's no secret that uh, I think Magnus uh, generally sits with uh, 
Well, I mean, there is only me on location, and we will speak uh, about prep and such, but I will generally send him some, some files. So it's not like we would uh, sit. I mean, Magnus takes uh, full responsibility himself. He gets uh, stuff from his seconds, and then he figures out how he wants to, to, to use it uh, and such. So uh, it's, it's, it's a completely different style, but I think also it's important to have people having their own style. For instance, when uh, at some point I spoke about the match in 2008, well, it was clear that Vichy prevailed opening-wise in that match. And uh, we would like to tell the story. That's because we have a much more open-minded structure that people can look at whatever they want and such. While in Team Kramnik, um, well, they are just told, you look at this, you look at this, and you don't communicate uh, with each other. And uh, based on 2008, it sounds like, uh, you know, Vichy's strategy is the best, Kramnik's is crap. But then Kramnik was the guy who took down Kasparov with exactly the same method. So, uh, I mean, I think people should do what works for, for them. At least that's my, my experience working with the, the two I've been, been allowed to work with. Okay. And with Vichy, were there any sort of monomic devices or catchphrases? Or was it just straight up chess lines and positions? I think mainly mainly chess lines and such. But also, well, you, you, well, you learn, I mean... We were all, of course, influenced by this disaster in, in Sofia in game game one, right? Where Vichy remembered that at some point he should play king f7, but he played it one move too early and just lost immediately or something like this. So it's something that you try and, uh, uh, you know, remember certain details. But I think also at, at that point I started realizing that um, my responsibility, well, it's very tempting as a second um, to give too much information because then you protect yourself from criticism. Because, well, you can always tell him that, well, it wasn't your file, right? But if you give so much information, they can't remember it. You're only protecting yourself. You're not trying to help you, the guy you work for. So I think we started to realize that at, at some point and we started to try and, and, and limit it uh, to an extent. That, of course, has the problem that sometimes you haven't given enough info, but um, there is no particular solution to that. It's going to be, you know, game to game, what you think is relevant or not. But um, uh, I don't think we had any kind of special methods in that. I think also, I mean, it could be that we do it rather low level because we are experts in chess, but we don't know that much uh, else. We don't have, uh, you know, well... It would make sense to study these things on, on an academical level, but we don't really have time for that because we have to check openings and such. I remember, for instance, that um, at some point we were pretty happy that we started to understand that you could use engines remotely um, and uh, that we used for, I think, for, for the World Championship in 2008. I'm not sure we did it in seven. But um, the funny thing was that the software we were using, I think, was written in 2003. So apparently <laughs> there was definitely some years before where we could have done it, but we just didn't know it existed and such. So despite competing for the World Championship, it me doesn't necessarily mean that you are into all these kind of details. I remember uh, another thing that uh, I was having a, a lovely lunch with the Demis Hassabis, uh, the, the sort of... Uh, uh, deep mind founder and, and creator of, of Alpha Zero, and we spoke about a lot of details and such. It was very interesting. But at some point, he asked me, "So, well, who is actually the computer expert in your team?" And I said, "Well, I think that's me." And he looked a bit, <laughs> a bit weirdly at me based on uh, the conversation we had. But uh, well, well, that's um, how it's done at times. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to com 
call themselves a computer expert in front of Demise Hassan. No, no, so. I, I didn't do it like that. But I said that just, uh, yeah. I didn't call myself an expert, but he sort of, well, yeah, so who is responsible for these, uh, you know, things? And I, well, that's probably also me. It's just that, well, I would like someone else to do it, but if no one does it, it's, uh, well, it's my job to do it, right? Yeah, so. it makes sense. Okay, so we get to the games, and in game one, uh, Gelfand, uh, as far as I've read, greatly surprises your team with the Grunfeld. Uh, yeah. Is it, you you didn't expect that? No, uh, this was basically a disaster. Uh, no, it actually wasn't a disaster. But I mean, well, that basically became it became a joke in the team that, uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm I'm rightly quoted for saying at some point that, okay, what is the likelihood for that? Uh, Gelfand will play the Grunfeld, and I also said the same about the Svestnikov. He has basically <laughs> not played these uh, openings his whole life. And my argument was, okay, you know, the guy is not young. He didn't expect to play a World Championship match. If he had some openings he really believed in, he would have played them earlier. There's simply, I mean, there is a reason that uh, at plus 40 he's, he's not played these openings. So I thought it's completely ridiculous to spend a lot of energy on having a repertoire like that. So the decision was only to have some very, very small um, lines ready. Uh, that completely failed. I mean, the idea we had against the Svestikov, we'll come to that get, game later, was embarrassing. But surprisingly, despite not believing it would happen at all, um, we had a pretty good idea against the Grunfeld, uh, this bishop b5 check and some, some sacrifice uh, of the exchange. I think it was even Jan Gustafsson who tipped me that this was kind of reasonable. And it's not a good idea. It's just a forced draw. But it's so, so rare that uh, I think at that time, for instance, Boris Afruk has made a book about the Grunfeld, and it wasn't mentioned there. So at least, well, we're sticking to this strategy that I talked about, that when you prepare so much, at least you try to make sure that if they spring a big surprise on you, you have some kind of safety net to fall in. And uh, the safety net was pretty good in this here. It was actually a quite dangerous one-game idea. And had Vichy remembered his prep uh, better, he would uh, have put him under considerable pressure, if I remember correctly. I think that maybe he should have played Bishop F4, or maybe Bishop F4 was the wrong move. I, I haven't checked right now. But um, Vichy misremembered some kind of detail in his prep. But also, well, it becomes also absurd. If I criticize him for not uh, remembering his preparation against the Grunfeld, but at the same time I tell him, no way Grunfeld is happening. Please look at something uh, relevant instead. But uh, no, we had uh, very interesting preparations in, in the Nimsu engine and uh, other areas like uh, I would expect uh, Semislav and such. But, uh, well, that uh, that didn't happen. So no, this um, in the sort of guessing game, it was a complete uh, disaster. But then we actually had some kind of backup plan that was quite reasonable. And I think it was something that we added with a few days to, to go even. Because, uh, I mean, in this three-month camp, I have basically said that, okay, Grunfeld, forget about it. It's just not going to happen. And we barely put any kind of work. Um, so um, it was a strange start to the match in the way that, well, you can imagine, we had done so much work in the Nimswenian and the Queen's Gambit declined. And maybe also some Simislav. And now we just say, okay, he's playing the Grunfeld. We had half an idea there. We have used it. We have no idea what to do next. Uh, it yeah. all, all, had you to, have... all had to be invented on the, on the spot. Right. And you've got mere days to think about it. And you've got to think about the black repertoire as well. Exactly. And yeah. They've, they've been working on this for months, perfecting it. So Yeah, this yeah. was... Uh, no, it, it didn't feel... Uh, 
it didn't feel like we had done uh, much right <laughs> the last four, <laughs> four months at the time. And then we have a string of draws, Peter. So, yeah. I mean, certainly in at moments, both players have chances. <laughs> so I don't know how much you want to go into detail about the, no, the first six I mean, games that were draws. The, the black games um, were not that inspiring. I mean, we basically was doing this kind of uh, very concrete uh, opening solution styles that, um, well, I think it's, I think Ogor has written about it, for instance, that there is different kind of openings. There's either the sort of the good openings that, uh, you know, it doesn't depend on a very concrete solution to get equality. You have many moves and you, it's more common sense and, and solid by itself. Vichy was playing slightly differently there. We played some line. We call it maybe the, the triangle because it puts pawns on a6, c6 and e6. And it's maybe a bit subpar. But we tried to have some long-forced solutions everywhere and such. And um, I think it worked, if I remember, quite well for the first three games. We managed to to spring a lot of surprises. And um, maybe only one of the games, Vichy was under kind of, kind of some pressure, right? While the others, um, he solved, uh, well, he solved his problems uh, easily. But Gelfand was basically just being solid also. The, the, the thing we hoped for that... Gelfand would overpress and be too optimistic didn't happen at all. I mean, we, we hoped that maybe we could provoke Gelfand into some complex battles, for instance, um, in, in this uh, setup uh, that we played. White has some some areas where um, where Black gets to play, but Gelfand was doing it cleverly and uh, completely made sure Bishi didn't get to yeah do what he liked and just had to memorize theory and try to, to equalize in a dry way. And uh, no, Gelfen was impressive in, in that sense. I mean, he didn't try to rush events and anything. He, he trusted that he would be able to, to do things well with black. And uh, of course it was frustrating for us that the, the draws just kept rolling in because we basically saw ourselves as big favorites. And uh, well, if you are the big favorite, the shorter the match in reality becomes when you just make a lot of draw, the more randoms you're going to feel, the more pressure you're going to be under. So uh, this was uh, generally not uh, a good feeling. And uh, I think, as you mentioned also, then at some point, I forgot, it was was it game three or game five that was the Sveznikov? Five, yeah. Five, yeah. So in game three, we, we at least tried this F3 Grunfeld, which became... Um, well, we had looked a bit at the before the match. It wasn't really ready and such, but then... Well, we decided that would be fun to play. And uh, I think especially Gajewski was also helping a lot with, with interesting ideas. But uh, Gelfand had some, you know, novel concept and it became a very interesting game. But it was uh, sort of um, unclear how, how who, who was uh, sort of in, in charge of that. But generally just a very good game. But again, we allowed Gelfand to, to spring a novelty on us, which was... Uh, not 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 ideal. So, and uh, in game five, it just became worse. We decided to switch to one e four. We were obviously well prepared against his Petrov and his uh, his Nidov. He came up with, uh, and I think even well, we thought maybe he will go to the Berlin. At least that would be a logical choice for him. We had some not good but interesting ideas there. But he played the Svestnikov, and it was um, well. I mean, he played the Svestnikov, and all we had of preparation was that we basically played the main line without any kind of idea, and just uh, Gelfand showed him his, showed us what he's been preparing for for, for weeks, and it was a quick draw. So, um, I mean, after six games, uh, 
the mood was not good. I mean, well, nothing was not nothing was working. Vichy didn't get to be Vichy in the sense of getting positions where he could uh, try and play play what he's good at and such. Uh, we lacked uh, opening ideas, so that was um, some kind of uh, desperation, I would say. And uh, I think this was maybe at the time where we start. Uh, well, at World Championship matches, you always try to cash in all kind of favors you have from friends and such. But uh, <laughs> I think Kasim got in touch with. Um, um, Michael Adams at this point, and uh, he, he was very helpful to us in terms of uh, that we got pointed to that maybe the Rosalie, Rosalima was a, a good choice. And uh, at that time, he was sort of not seen as a very principled. Of course, nowadays it's the the main main thing, but that uh, that was very different uh, then. Okay, and listeners, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better when we yeah. get to Game Seven. But first, we're going to take uh, one more break and uh, hear from our sponsors. I've been playing Blitz a little bit better lately, so I figured I'd check out what's going on with my game from our friends at aimchess.com. And what I discovered is I'm not blundering as much, so that's good news. My openings continue to be reasonably strong, especially with black. Um, I still have things to improve, still trying to get better at playing faster, especially in Blitz, and converting advantages and even resourcefulness. But the good thing is that Aim Chess shows you positions where you didn't... Um, play to your full strength and you're able to either practice against the computer or learn from it, uh, practice specific openings, tactics that you missed, etc. You can do all this stuff on aimchess.com. So please use the link in the show description to check it out. And if you decide to subscribe, use the link or the code perpetual30 on aimchess.com. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we are back. So as we alluded to in game seven, uh, Boris Gelfand strikes first. He he wins the game. So what are your recollections of that fateful moment, Peter? Yeah, that was, well, it's surprising, a bit of apathy to some extent, right? It's also, well, you can stop doubting yourself. It's also, well, why do we keep playing the same opening over and over again? Uh, I think was was uh, part of our our, our reasoning. Also, well, I think uh, game six and seven is when uh, the colors doubles, right? So um, in the first three set of games, Vichy had white first, now Gelfand had white first. So uh, this is the first time where they had a free day where the next game would be white. So it would be logical they came up with um, some kind of new idea. Um, but that we didn't have the courage to change openings at that time was, with hindsight, weak. Of course, it's you can argue it's hindsight because uh, he lost, but um, we, did, we did have our other ideas and openings ready, so we really should have, have done that. But Gelfand had a, a small idea. He got a slightly better position, and uh, well, he was not able to neutralize it and uh, just uh, lost very, very sort of... Uh, Without much much effort, in a way, Gelfand just played a, a very good game. Which he didn't put up resistance, and it was um, it was kind of shocking for us to see. <laughs> no doubt about that. And uh, no, we're still getting to the stage where just nothing has gone wrong for uh, gone right for us for a very long time. And uh, 
I think at that point we start realizing that, well, actually, Vichy could lose this. And, um, well, I don't think we had that impression or sort of uh, had this um, mentality. I think we thought it's it's always going to be okay uh, at some point. But I think obviously the one who was most affected was, uh, was Vichy. I think, uh, well, now we know he wins the next game. And he says at the press conference there that he didn't get much sleep uh, at night. And um, I think after game seven, it's... Maybe there was one time early in the match, but it's probably the only time he asked me, let's uh, actually go for a walk, just the two of us, sort of, uh, just to talk. And I think we we basically went from the hotel in the direction of the Red Square and back, mainly just talking a bit about life, a little bit about the, uh, the match and such. But uh, I think um, it's to somehow, well, talk with your oldest second, just to try and rebuild confidence a, a bit, try to feel some kind of, of closeness. Uh, but it's an obvious sign that, of, of course, he was very nervous at the time. There's no no doubt about it. And uh, it was it was a, a strange uh, moment there because just so, so little were working and we seemed to have no idea how to sort of um, get out of it in any way. But, well, of course... In this situation, I think you try to just compensate by working even harder uh, in in a way. And, um, well, working harder didn't work for us with this three-month camp. But I think at um, at sort of world championship matches, well, working harder actually pays, pays off to some extent. Because I think our experience is that the, 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 the work before is more to sort of cover all the bases and be ready. But the real creative work, the work that really matters, is during the matches when you suddenly, when you start getting a lot of information from your opponents and such. I think, uh, well, what I mean, now at least we knew he's going to go the Grunfeld, and when we played F3 against the Grunfeld, we knew okay, he had this prepared. What's going to happen next? We don't know, but at least we suddenly have some kind of target. And uh, sort of being behind, we thought okay, this F3 Grunfeld would be uh, a very interesting area for us to ex- to explore. So. Uh, I think at least we came with it with uh, quite some optimism, but I think we also understood that, um, especially as the game progressed in the beginning, that it's going to be some kind of Benoni position. Vichy has very little experience with that. It can also be that the match is practically over by today, but uh, it is, certainly didn't end up like that. Yes, and we'll, we'll get to Game 8 in a second. Just a couple more things in the mindset uh, after the Game 7 loss. Uh in Mindmaster, Vishyanan wrote, and he described a sort of dour mindset even before Game 7, just because as you, the opening um, surprises that you alluded to uh, felt like you guys weren't making much headway um, with either color. And then he writes, after Game 7, it was clear that Gelfand wasn't troubled or impressed by our opening choices. And then, Peter, we have a question from the Perpetual Chess Patreon mailbag, um, some of which you've just touched on, but some of which... Uh, you, hopefully you could flesh out a little more. This is from a friend of the podcast, Chris Wainscott, who writes, in such a short match, what changes about the approach when the opponent takes the lead as Gelfand did in Game 7? Do you stay the stay the course with your original plan as long as you can, or do you change the approach right away? And he also writes, congrats on the Chicken Chess Club. I'm loving it, and go bearish Politz Nielsen. Okay. <laughs> I... I... I don't know how many things I should thank for, so I'll just give a big, <laughs> big thank you sort of for, for, for all of it uh, and then return to the question. 
I mean, there's not a lot of time. I mean, well, think of uh, Pune Pomiachi in the, the previous World Championship match, right? He actually lost the game after midnight. You have to sleep and you have to play the next game at three o'clock. You don't really have time. Well, maybe you lie awake at night and such, but to sit down and think about which strategies to, to change, we didn't do much. I think basically, well, we had prepared this F3, which is pretty sharp. Now it was definitely the way to go. But I think the general sort of lessons are that it's only after three days that people actually get to sort of change their strategy. And um, I think it sounds strange, but uh, I have very little experience with actually the, the one I was helping being behind um, with a free day. I mean, Vichy was behind a couple of times, but he somehow always managed to equalize. Uh, so there was no free day to go and think about, okay, actually now we're behind, how are we going to deal with this situation and such. There was maybe once with Magnus uh, and, and Kayakin, but but that's all I remember. Um, so I think it just comes down to opening ideas and... Um, there's still a lot of games left, so it's not sort of desperate, but I think it's more this idea starts com coming creeping that, okay, actually, it's very possible for you to lose this match. Of course, with uh, Topalov and uh, with Kramnik, um, we knew that it was very likely to lose the match uh, and such, but I think just at this point, Vichy uh, was just seen as such a big favorite against Gelfan that uh, we also somehow had lulled ourselves into this idea that... Uh, this idea that he could actually lose is not—it's uh, not really realistic. And uh, then suddenly start feeling felt feeling like that, and of course you become nervous. And um, well, I guess we also start feeling guilty to some extent because, as you describe it, Vichy didn't get a lot of help in the openings that uh, we would like to give him and such. So, uh, I mean, now it turns out well. Now we actually starts creating quite some uh, opening novelties in in the latter phase. So it's, it it ends up well. But of course, had it gone the other way. Um, it would have been a pretty sad story overall. As, as I said, there is not much uh, good news to, to tell at this point. Yeah. But luckily, Vichy, well, I should say, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of both Kelfan yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and Vichy. Yeah, so, so am I. So. <laughs> so I'm only telling this from the sort of uh, protagonist yeah. point of view. But, uh, but with that in mind, I'll say, luckily for Vichy, um, he bounced back strong and, uh, as you said, got a, a King's Indian slash Benoni structure in the opening. And Gelfan uh, made a small mistake early and then a bigger mistake and lost in 17 moves. Um, so, quick it was, relief. It was basically just a miscalculation from Gelfan and it cost him the point. And you can even argue possibly the match and such. Um, it happens. I mean, I have tremendous respect for the way Gelfan was doing it. I mean, he just tries to to play, play chess. Um, he, as you said, he didn't seem to change his strategy. He thought that this is the right way to play against F3, so I will, I will do it. And also, history has has proven that this is actually the popular choice for for Black. You can, of course, argue that it's risky and he should play something more solid. But, um, well, it's not that easy to do. And to suddenly start changing your strategy just because you come, come ahead is also kind of uh, weird. A bit hindsight, maybe he should have done it. But... Um, um, well, this was, uh, for us, of course, it was a gift falling down from the sky, right? Um, things has gone gone badly, Vichy was behind, and suddenly it's equal again. But also, it's, yes, the score is equal, but the momentum has completely changed. I mean, we have been very much down, suddenly we win, and it makes a huge difference. I mean, uh, of course, if you have to swap wins, you would much rather win the latter one, because it's you who suddenly have, have momentum and such. But, uh, well, this was... Uh, 
yeah, it was really a, a pity for Gelfand. And as you say that, uh, well, I see these things as a sport event and you're on one team, so you're allowed to root for them. I mean, I think Gelfand is a great guy and that uh, the world would maybe have been a, a better place had Gelfand also been world champion at some point. But uh, I mean, it's sport, so you try to, to win. I think there's nothing nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but um, this was was very, very puzzling. Also that you, you understand for seven games, it was so difficult to create any kind of chances and then suddenly, boom, one mistake and, and it it happens. And it, it is sad for Gelfand that the only game he loses in a World Championship match is going to be uh, from a blunder like, like that. But, um, I mean, well, Vichy did put him under pressure. He did punish it well and such. There's not much else he, he, he can do. And, uh, I mean, from... No, not from here on, but... Um, well, of course, it, it changes the momentum for us in a way. But I think we are mainly mainly puzzled, mainly just uh, happy because at this point, uh, yeah, um, things have not started to turn out, turn our way yet. Yeah, and I, I want to share, Peter, an amazing quote from Mindmaster uh, that, uh, by Viswanathan Anand who writes, of the moment where he spotted where he could trap uh, Gelfand's queen, which led to him resigning uh, in this uh, important, you know, extremely important game eight. He writes, I felt my heart hammering against my ribs. My legs began to seize and my mind screamed, oh my God, I'm going to win this game. I gulped down the euphoria and held up an exterior of calm. Just a few minutes left. Don't botch this up. Remember the notes when you were winning, go get some tea. Gelfand sat there thinking for what seemed like an eternity. He resigned soon after I returned to the board. I had swum out of the undertow. So, for any yeah. listeners enjoying this podcast who haven't read Mindmaster, definitely recommend it. Very, very much so. Um, well, it reminds me a bit of um, I cannot remember which of if it was Game Three or Game Five uh, from Bonn, but it was a bit the same there. I mean, Vichy sees some kind of trick, and then he hopes the opponent falls into it. But these moments can be incredibly tense when you sort of uh, you know that. Uh, there is quite a likelihood your opponent will blunder and then you're going to win. And this is a very, very nervous moment. I mean, uh, um, well, then you can feel your pulse running and and, uh, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, but it's also strange that somehow... I wouldn't say it feels unjust winning this game, but I have a lot of positive emotion from this match. But somehow Game 8, not really. It was just... Uh, it was a nice gift, but... Uh, I mean, as a second, there's not much to be proud of. Even as a, as a player, there's not that uh, much else to do than collect the point and, and, and go home, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and just one more thing about that quote. Like, from the, the club player's perspective, Peter, like, it's, you know, it's rare that I find someone like Anand relatable, even though he's gentleman and personable, but just his chess skills are so out of this world. But when he describes emotions like that, to me, it's we, we all feel the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. No, but I think the, the human emotions are not very different uh, depending on you on your level. Uh, I, I would say, right? I mean, I, they strike me as very similar. But of course, well, the, the the good players play play better. That's perhaps the difference. Right? <laughs> well said. Maybe also there maybe also there's more at stake yeah, in terms of prestige and finance. But I think uh, these emotions that uh, we feel ourselves, uh, depending on our level, are more or less the same, uh, whatever skill you are, even if you're world championship level. At least that's my impression. Yeah. So we get back to the chess. Uh, game nine, uh, Anand with black, finally ditches the Slav, uh, switches to the Nimzo. Um, what, what are your recollections of that? the, the games heading into the playoffs? Period? Well, uh, Another disaster, opening-wise, as far as I remember. <laughs> it's also 
Well, again, Gelfand placed the Nimso with E3. Uh, that was pretty low on our list. We would expect he would play Catalans, maybe Queen's Gambit, maybe Queen C2 Nimso, which we prepared ourselves as white and such, that he would play E3 Nimso. Well, basically, the E3 Nimso was not supposed to give white any kind of advantage. Uh, and uh, it, it doesn't, and it didn't do it at that time. But because of this line called the Karpov system that uh, Vichy played in game nine. But of course, Gelfand had some kind of idea, and Gelfand did things cleverly. I mean, he just decided on, let's say, Svesnikov, uh, Grunfeld, and Nimsu with E3 that he thought these things are going to be unpleasant for Vichy. He doesn't like to play against it and such. I mean, that he was very impressive. And also, well, I think Gelfand's idea was that against the sort of uh, expected response that, um, well, White would... Uh, he had some idea that he would be slightly, slightly better, and then he could play a bit from there. But, I mean, Gelfand had this realistic approach of... Uh, he was not trying to get huge advantages with White. He was just trying to get playable positions. And uh, that surprised us because uh, we came with the impression that Vichy was the better player, so that Gelfand would avoid trying to play chess. But it seemed like... Uh, Gelfand disagreed with that, or maybe Gelfand just thought that uh, a World Championship match is to find out who is the best player, so I'm going to play as well as I can, and if I don't win, it's fair enough. I mean, uh, no, Gelfand was a, a very tricky opponent, and once again, he kind of outsmarted us, uh, I would say. Um, is this the game where Vichy gives up the pair of bishops? Uh, I forgot. He takes an F3. Um, I would have to check, okay. check that. I, I have in my notes that he narrowly held a fair fortress rook and knight versus yeah, yeah, queen. Yeah, exactly. This is where he does this. Vichy does one thing that is incredibly impressive. Um, well, in, in some position, uh, Vichy plays this typical idea. Bishop takes f3, and the idea is when you take back to the queen, like Gelfand did, you play e5. Uh, well, some very famous Karpov game. This was, uh, well, obviously some difference here. But the problem was that Vichy played bishop, he executed bishop takes f3, queen takes f3, and he realized, okay, my intended e5 just loses, basically. And uh, then he played something else. But also, well, then bishop takes f3 is completely ridiculous. And it's obvious that Vichy understands immediately that, well, I've just given away my strong bishop for his knight. It's completely hopeless to, to, to do like that. But he shows a lot of emotional control. Uh, and it would be so easy to take an f3 when he takes back to the queen. Okay, damn it, I don't have anything else on e5 played and then lose. But there he was actually very calm and defended uh, extremely well. Um, Gelfand could maybe have won, maybe he could, instead of taking the queen, he could have got different things. But, um, well, there's no, simply bishop takes f3 is such a bad move that he, Gelfand got all these chances. But I'm, I was very impressed that Vichy was able just to admit, okay, I've done something horrible, let me at least not make it worse. Uh, and he was not, well, the main problem is that it looks so embarrassing what he did, but that he, emotion he was actually man managing to stop and just try to, okay, I'm going to optimize my chances, I don't give a damn if I'm going to look, look stupid. So this uh, this I was very happy to see, and of course that he managed to, to draw it with some luck was, uh, was huge, because, uh, well, Imagine we have just gotten this gift in game eight, uh, and if then Vichy gives it all away by some some very stupid oversight, that would have been a psych difficult psychological blow. Obviously, the match would not have been over, but uh, no, that would have been, uh, been 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 tough. Yeah, and obviously only three games left after that. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, and circling back to your discussion of uh, the how impressed you were with uh, Boris Gelfand's approach in terms of uh, opening selection, um, have you? I'm sure you've read a little bit about how he may have approached it. Have you had any discussions with Boris about his match strategy? No, unfortunately not. I mean, it would be very interesting to have these kind of debriefings uh, with, with uh, I mean, opponents. But somehow, well, it's also. Maybe it's a bit rude to ask. I mean, he he actually lost. Maybe it's bad memories and such. It would maybe be easier if uh, if he approached us. But for instance, uh, recently I was at Chess Summer Camp in uh, in Charlotte, and Tupalov was not one of the other uh, people giving lists there. And I, I spoke a bit with him about the match. And uh, no, he Tupalov uh, he he has no problem speaking openly about these things. So we were discussing some things. And it was quite interesting to to hear and such. But. Uh, I mean, well, that should probably be done in more detail about all the games. But really, Topala was talking about his supercomputer, but also some of the opening ideas. For instance, this game won that he won so easily and such. He was also saying that, uh, yeah, I mean, this was um, well, something they also... Well, I didn't prepare it that much. I've forgotten the details of what he said. But um, um, no, this would be extremely nice. And I hope that... Uh, well, someone should bring us together and buy us a beer and put on a recorder at some point. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> sounds like something I should do. Yeah, yeah, no. I, yeah, so, yeah. You come to mind, right? So, yeah, <laughs> I'll, no, I'll go to Charlotte for that. That, that. that would be would be very interesting to to talk with, with people about it. For instance, um, well, Laurent Fresnay was the second for Kramnik, and I was for, for Vichy. So, of course, we were exchanging these kind of memories. But uh, I think to sort of compare notes now that it's possible due to the computer age would be some interesting uh, project to, to, to do at some point. But, uh, well, people still want to keep their secrets and such. But I think uh, right. it would be interesting to have this sort of uh, talk like that. But I have, I think I have only done it with uh, with Topalov. And, uh, again, we are talking about uh, 10 minutes when we are sitting on, in the back of a taxi going back and forth, right? Not in, right. In, not in a very structured manner. So I think none of us was having our notes uh, in front of us and so on and so forth. Well, but Peter, there has been a lot of discussion about the alleged uh, supercomputer of Topalov's. I, as we discussed last mm-hmm. time, um, you know, uh, it, it struck fear in your hearts during the match. But subsequently, uh, Grandmaster Cheparinov, who was on Topalov's team, has said it was a bit overblown. Um, did did so? Could you share any of what? Uh, yeah, I what think Topalov said exactly the same. I mean, also Cheparinov probably has worked much more with it than uh, Topalov uh, in the sense that. No, I, I don't think it was fully ready and set up with with uh, chess. I think this uh, problem of uh, scaling a supercomputer to work with chess is not that uh, simple. I mean, before the Depomniarchi match, I was also part of some kind of uh, online conference uh, where, where people from the Skolkov University was also there. And they were sort of saying that, well... The supercomputer they have in Skolko, they they lent to Nepomniachtchi. They also had problems with scaling uh, and such. And uh, well, the the Alpha Zero guys was there, and I was there, and I was sort of sort of really I was about to shout out, please don't tell them if you know how to scale it properly, because uh, <laughs> we we don't need him to have an even stronger computer for the match, right? Was but, uh, was this conference before or after? The yeah, World this was uh, during some I think some World Cup, so like three months before the World, oh, World wow. Championship. There was well, there was this online conference with. Uh, me, guys from Skolko, and then uh, someone from from DeepMind. But uh, no, 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 no. I don't think that uh, they did, DeepMind didn't give them any secrets, and uh, I think Skolko guys uh, well get, made a good impression. But they were openly saying that this uh, scaling a supercomputer to work with uh, these classical computer chess programs is apparently not uh, that easy. But uh, 
as I said before, I'm not an expert to that extent. Okay. Well, bringing it back to, back to the match, Peter, as you alluded to earlier, Game 10, uh, you spring the Rosalimo, courtesy of uh, Grandmaster Mickey Adams' help, but still uh, another draw. Yeah, and somehow um, we were not quite there yet. I mean, we, we went to the Rosalimo. Um, Gelfand uh, played 3-6. Uh, I think the game was Castles 97, then B3, or did we go B3 first? Yeah, B3 and then E5, yeah. Ah, sorry, sorry. You know, we took on C6. Yeah, uh, so it was uh, Bishop B5, E6, Bishop uh, C6, B takes C6, and then B3. And that, we thought, was very promising. But uh, again, Gelfand showed excellent preparation. He had this move, uh, 5E5, that we have only touched on very, very briefly. We thought this ending appearing was slightly better for White, but it turned out not really to be. I mean, Gelfand, again, managed to frustrate us a lot with our with his his preparation, but you but you are right that well there the Rosalimo started, but um, somehow it didn't really work either. So at this point, um, the white well the white openings simply were not working uh, at, at all. But I think here something kind of clicked uh, at least among the seconds and such because. I think maybe it was Kasim Djanov. I mean, we had to decide, what are we going to do for game 11? And I think Kasim Djanov said, okay, I'm so sick and tired of being surprised all the time. Now I'm going to invent some kind of sideline and Gelfand has not prepared, and I'm going to make it work. And basically, from here on, I mean, the first 10 games, well, Gelfand was dominating opening-wise. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But uh, the remaining part here is still something I'm very proud of, because... Uh, now suddenly we start uh, spraying out uh, interesting uh, concepts uh, and uh, putting Gelfand on, on tremendous pressure. I mean, somehow we managed to exploit all the energy we sort of know, all the information we have gathered for the first part of the match. But uh, of course, we have to praise ourselves. Very lucky that uh, the situation is, is not worse than it was at the time. But um, from here on, suddenly things starts to, to actually work very well. And um, I mean... Well, as I said, the most creative work has to be done during the match. But of course, it has to be done that we only start succeeding with it uh, when there is a couple of games left. It's not ideal. But uh, the, the last part of the match is something I'm very proud of, no doubt. Yeah, it seemed like in, in reading the history, it seemed like in the rapid playoff in particular, you guys managed to keep yeah, Gelfand but even, on his even, back foot. Yeah, but even game 12, uh, I think we were... We were very proud of. I mean, game 11 became the Nimsoentian, but instead of um, the cap of line with b6, bishop b7, um, Kazim insisted on let's try bishop d7 to c6. And uh, it looks strange. Why not put the bishop on, on a more safe square on, on b7? But there, it has some pluses and minuses. And uh, that we managed to make work very well. And uh, for a change, it was Vichy who knew the details, not, not Gelfand. And, uh, well, I think it was a pretty decent game and, and a draw. But I remember a considerable change of mood in the team. Like, now we were so tired of being chased and being unsuccessful that now we thought, okay, it's our turn to spring the surprises. And, uh, well, I think also that affected Vichy, that there was suddenly some positive energy again. Um, but, I mean, basically that's uh, my, my storyline, that uh, from January 15 till uh, Game 10... I mean, we didn't manage much, but then somehow when it really mattered, it, it became came, came good again. As I said, um, well, game 11 was this uh, bishop d7 to c6 of, of Kasim. Game 12, um, 
was I think even more interesting. Um, this was this Rosolimo, and then Bishop takes c6, um, b takes c6 again, and now we played a very strange move order: d3, knight e7, b3. Um, this was something that occurred to me not in a dream, but um, after game eleven, when falling asleep, I started thinking about it. And I remember being so tired that I thought, okay, should I actually go up and write a note? I said, no, I'm too tired. I'm just going to sleep. But I remembered the next morning. And the point of the move order is that after b3 and move 5, you saw Gelfand play e5. And that was quite strong. So now, well, we play d3. And then he's forced to go knight e7. Well, he's not because now queen c7 is topical. But at that time, you thought you were forced to play knight e7. And then we played the move b3. And this looks incredibly weird. But um, it has quite some some pluses, and uh, somehow it makes the the B three con- concept that we really wanted for game ten possible. But um, there is pluses and minuses. But suddenly we started analyzing a very strange concept, um, but became sort of experts in it, and it turned out to be much more venomous than we actually thought. Um, and especially, I forgot what happened after. Uh, I think after ninety seven B three did he play D six? Uh, I would have checking. to call the game up. But yeah. for instance, there was lines like D six. We wanted to play E five. Then he takes it. We play ninety five. That is the move queen to D four. But uh, there were some incredibly sharp lines after that. And we analyzed these things to great great details. They're not necessarily better for white, but they're very difficult to to handle. And we thought that Gelfand might be caught uh, unaware of that. But especially as what happened in the game. Uh, you found it? Yeah, I did. Okay, so what happens after b3? b3, d6, 7, e5, yeah. knight g6, h4. Ex- exactly. I mean, after e5, knight g6, this move h4. Um, well, this was uh, Ganguly who came up with this. I mean, this is uh, an insanely strong idea in the, in, in the sense of that it's a positional pawn sacrifice, but if he sort of accepts it, he might just be positionally dead a long time and White uh, will will win quite uh, sort of in, in, in great attacking styles. I think H4 might even be suggested by the neural networks uh, nowadays, but at, at that time it wasn't really the case. So we were incredibly excited for that. And especially when, when it happened, uh, it, it was basically amazing. The problem was that, uh, I think on move 10, Gelfand played some move c4, right? Which was an extremely strong uh, reaction. I think Gelfand thought for 40 min- minutes or something like this and played this. And, uh, well, that seemed to make vi- make Vichy lose confidence to some extent. Um, uh, he was still slightly better, but basically he was coasting towards a draw. And I remember sp- exactly that... Um, there was a lot of disappointment uh, within the seconds. I mean, we thought, okay, finally we find this great idea. Finally, he gets a good position, and it just ends up in a draw. But I think at least we managed to to hide our emotions. Maybe Vichy understood it. Maybe he also felt disappointed himself. But um, we managed to be very professional and also look forward to now comes a, comes a playoff and such. But um, no, there, I mean... I wouldn't say we were celebrating, but we were incredibly excited for the first time uh, for this uh, day. We thought, okay, this is game 12, it's chess history, and we come up with a great concept, and we she going to do like in Bonn and uh, play an amazing game. But um, the problem was that uh, perhaps contrary to Bonn, 
Gelfand uh, defended brilliantly with his move C4, and uh, the game ended up in a draw. Uh, yeah, amazing, amazing class by Gelfand. Yeah, to, he was, to I mean, Gelfand, uh, again, I'm starting to, well, I felt pity for him already in 2012, but I feel even more now that, um, well, it would have been nice uh, to, to, to have Gelfand on the list of world champions, but uh, yeah. it's probably too late now, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. And there was a bit of play left in the position Vichy was up upon, mm-hmm. and there was a bit of play left in the final position where he agreed to a draw. How how did you feel about that at, at that time, Peter? Uh, I think in the end we thought it was not too much, but I think it was more disappointment in terms of um, um, sort of um, that this was a missed opportunity in a way. But uh, well, it was also a typical thing that um, if Vichy had, had lost some kind of uh, you know, advantage or some hidden possibility, my instincts would always be to hide it for him, not to tell him, to sort of not uh, make him disappointed. While Kasebjanov was basically the opposite, uh, sort of. Um, he would um, he would uh, think that, no, he, he needs to know because he he needs to stay more alert. He needs to be roughed up a little bit, uh, I think was his, was his term. So uh, I think basically we started to describe each other as a, uh, well, sort of not good cop, bad cop, but good second, bad second in terms of uh, how we would give feedback. But we can get back to that about uh, when we get to the playoff, when, which we are probably where we're heading now, I guess, right? Yes, we are. So do you get a rest day before the playoff? Yeah, or? there was a rest day before the playoffs, and that uh, gives you time to well to prepare. Well, it means there's a rest day in terms of there's no play, but uh, preparing for, for this uh, playoff, of course, well, suddenly you have to prepare a lot of games in a, in a short time. And... Um, that we did, and I think especially now Luke McShane came up with some, well, very very nice concept that Vichy used in uh, in in game one of the playoff uh, and uh, no sorry game two and and one, but well here I think we did another good decision that we so- somehow thought okay um, enough of the the Nimso let's at least try to. Ensure that it's us who surprises, and uh, we started to go back to the Semislav. I mean, the Semislav must have been what Gelfand expected the most for the match, but we thought that at least now, twelve games have happened, he might have forgotten. And we also had some quite some good prep, which means ask the obvious question: Why didn't we use it before in the match? And I have absolutely no reasonable answer <laughs> to that. No, it's it simply makes no sense. I mean, obviously in game seven, but later I. I, yeah, I cannot. I cannot answer. I it it still puzzles me. Why didn't we think at some point that we'll maybe use this file we have have lying there? We just I, I, we fell in love with something else and got got stuck. But that's that's strange. But um, well, playoffs are a bit different in the way that um, well, suddenly the players are playing four games uh, at the same t- same day, right? So the seconds has to be available at the venue. But they cannot really all be that. There's limited space. I think we were allowed three people, which meant that, um, well, except for Vichy, obviously. We had a room where, uh, well, there would be some food and uh, maybe a chessboard, and we could bring our computers and we could be online. But there would be Vichy and Aruna, and then two of the seconds. And, uh, well, as you could imagine, it could give some problems so to which seconds are going to go with Vichy. Uh, because, well, maybe some would see it as prestige, he will choose uh, his favorites and so on and so forth, or who he thinks is best. But for us, it was extremely easy. I mean, well, Vichy wanted me and uh, Kasim, but also I think uh, Surya and uh, Vatasek would would rather not go, as far as I remember, at least uh, one of them said, said, said like that. So this was actually solved 
without any kind of uh, dispute. Um, had it only been one, it would have been yeah, difficult for either me and uh, Kasim to, to be discarded there. But for us, it worked easily and it worked also well in the, in the way that we had two people um, working. I mean, Ganguly and... Uh, um, and Wojtasek, but we will be in touch with them online. So actually, when I think of it, this is the first time I, I got to use remote seconds during a World Championship match. And uh, basically, the format is that they play four games, and between each game, there's like 10 minutes to discuss uh, things and such. But uh, it's very difficult to do, give a lot of advice there. So while we try to keep our usual routines, which you also needed to relax and such, so basically, it was only a couple of minutes. Uh, so he would look at some files and such. And when I sort of um, I think spoke about a bit this um, good good cop bad cop thing. It was uh, maybe after game two. Uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but Vichy was winning. But then he completely made a, a horrible mistake, which allowed Gelfand to to make a draw. But Gelfand didn't see it, and uh, Vichy won anyway. And uh, I was really telling Kasim, okay, please don't tell him that. And he said, no, no, he he has to to know it <laughs> in a way. So I, I tried to talk for some time. Uh, to sort of, you know, uh, block Kasim, but uh, I didn't manage. But I think it turned out well in, in the end. But also, it sounds like me and Kasim is competing, but I think on the contrary, we understood very well that we had different roles. And I think even we had to, we had spoken about it the, the day before, so that uh, we tried to complement each other with uh, sort of uh, different things. But um, the first game was uh, a Simislav, uh, Vichy, surprised by playing his main opening in the way that he hadn't done before in the match. It worked well. If anything, I forgot if Vichy was slightly better, but it was a draw and such. But um, that was a good start. But what we really were looking forward to was game two because we thought we had some kind of uh, great, great opening idea there. Um, this was um, was uh, McShane who has basically worked at that at night and sent us uh, an email with it. And uh, well, this move order we moved, used in game 12, we, we dropped, but I think we went back to the move order with 5B3, if I remember correctly, right? Yep. Yeah, and I think then after B3, the game was knight e5, queen e7, and now the strange move d4. And uh, this was not really the computer move, but uh, we had incredible analyzers there. Some some lines, the king was ending, our white king was on c4 and such. <laughs> and, uh, well, you can see that it's somehow maybe irresponsible, but the main thing was that we were having a lot of fun. And uh, we were having fun, but also the lines was at least somewhat relevant. But we came to this match, uh, the playoff, in a very good mood. Um uh, Perhaps also a confident move, but mainly in a good move. We, we liked chess against. It was not all these uh, draws we couldn't do anything about. Vichy was getting to play, and we thought we had some some great stuff here. So we actually came there with uh, a lot of uh, of confidence, I would say. And uh, this game, uh, too, I mean, the opening idea was was good. Uh, Vichy got some edge. Uh, at some point, he misplayed it. Kelvin could have made a draw, but he didn't. And, uh, you know, things uh, started to look like... Uh, they would finally uh, end up well for Vichy. That's the first time he was ahead. But, uh, well, he stayed ahead, but the last two games was, to put it mild, very, very bumpy, as I, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So do you put added value on being able to spring a surprise like that and the fact that it's an action playoff? I mean, obviously, there's fewer <laughs> games left. Heavily. I think also when it becomes rapid and uh, we somehow assumed it would be more nervous for Gelfand than for Vichy, but I'm not really sure what I'm basing it on. But at least Vichy has been more of this. Well, Vichy had a game 12 in uh, in Sofia, for instance. I mean, he's been in this kind of spots. It's it's not going to be easy for, for a person who's never been there before. I mean, 
well, you can train these kind of things, but you cannot you cannot simulate it uh, well in any way. I mean, you will only know how you handle it when you when you get there. Uh, I would say, but um, um, yeah, I forgot your question. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I was just asking if it's better to spring the surprise in the action. Yeah. You you answered it. Um, I think I think so. We tried to surprise uh, heavily and such, but uh, that backfired in in the next game three. Again, it becomes a bit technical, but. When Vichy played um, this Semislav, um, it had one problem, that we do it via d4, d5, c4, c6, knight f3, knight f6, move order. And our preparation for the match was mainly that after e3, we wanted to play a6. But then after knight c3, e6, we were transposed back to this line that he played in the first six games. But that exactly we had discarded for the match, um, for, uh, to some extent. But now we brought it back by playing the Semislav. And that worked well. We are the move order Gelfand actually played in the match. But for this exact game, he played knight f3, knight f6, e3, which busted our move order. Um, we knew this was a problem. Uh, Wojtasek told me one day before, we started talking about what are we going to do? Are we going to tell Vichy or not? Because he might freak out and uh, we suddenly have to put a lot of energy to something that's not going to happen. I think we took this rare decision. Okay, stuff it. We're not going to tell Vichy. We just, if he doesn't think about it himself, um, yeah, we'll live with it. I mean, and it worked well. Uh, the first game was a draw. The second game he won. But now in game three, when it really mattered, right? Uh, Gelfand played exactly this. Vichy um, was surprised. He took some kind of emotional decision and was basically positionally lost after five minutes. Um, so, <coughs> that was obviously not so good. But, um Gelfand misplayed it a bit and didn't manage to win this uh, overwhelming position he had, and it was a draw. So um, that was, um, yeah, that was a bit lucky. Well, well, what do you want me to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, generally luck doesn't hurt in these. Situations. No, exactly. It's much better to be lucky than be good. Wish it was good, but also at this stage the ball started to bounce in the right direction. I would say, and then came game four. He just needs to make a draw with White. Um, in Bonn, for instance, when he needed a draw to clinch the match, well, we had uh, excellent preparation doing that. Here we had like 10 minutes to to sort of um, um, adjust to the situation. And well, we had thought a bit about it in the, in the break between the games. But also, well, the problem is that we had excellent preparation in the night off, but it was very long, complicated lines. It sounded strange to do that when you only need a draw. So Vichy ended up, up playing bishop b5 check. Uh, and, uh, well, we had sort of told him that uh, after knight d7, you should play castle knight f6 d4 or something like this. But he was not into details. We hadn't really told them to him. So he was actually slightly worse out of the opening. But um, he showed his class. He he didn't panic. He didn't do anything wrong and uh, just managed to draw an inferior position with, with white. Uh, he shouldn't have gotten into this situation, but... Um, he managed to to defend it incredibly well, and uh, I would say, after all, he won the World Championship match deservedly based on the, his uh, sort of uh, last uh, efforts. But um, it was a bumpy ride, to put it mild. Yeah, uh, Vichy wrote in the Mind Master, "I won the match because I won. I didn't do anything to deserve the win, and apparently, he didn't do enough to not lose either." Something like that, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it it could have been a different story, and of course, uh, that would have been great for Gelfand, and uh, he would be on your podcast now, right? But uh, <laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's not not how how it is. But uh, it's also, I mean, I think I talked about how we celebrated and such after matches, right? And uh, 
um, for instance, when he won against uh, Topala, it was clear that we, was, we were euphoric and such. Um, maybe it's going to sound tough or arrogant to, to Gelfan, what I'm saying now, but we, we barely celebrated. I think we were relieved uh, and such. And had Gelfan won, of course, he would have been ecstatic as he was supposed to be. Also, I think one thing that made an impression on me was that, uh, well, this was happening in Moscow. And uh, I mean, I'm just uh, staying at home in my hotel. But during the playoff, um, well, I was also basically just sitting in some kind of, uh, not bunker, but um, well, behind the stage, there was some kind of uninspiring room with no windows. But basically, we were allowed to sit there and work. So I, I didn't see any chess fans. But at one point, I had to go to the toilet. And I, I passed by sort of the spectator. I was, it was completely packed with uh, spectators. But what struck me was also they were basically all rooting for Gelfand, as far as I could understand. Because, well, Gelfand um, has grown up as part of the sort of Soviet chess school and such, and had many friends and fans there and such. And, um, well, it almost felt like Sofia to some extent, except for, of course, that, well, Gelfand was incredibly kind to, towards us as a team and towards Vichy as a player uh, and such. But, uh, well, it was clear that we were basically, pl- Gelfand was playing at home in Moscow and, and we were not. Um, I'm just basically trying to maybe explain how popular Gelfand was and how how many people were hoping for that. I think even someone was telling me while I, I walked to the toilet that he, you know, he had this book that all world champions champions had signed and uh, that uh, he was uh, just he was here on location just in case Gelfand should win so he could sign the book. And I thought, well, that information I didn't necessarily need to get right at that time. But um, <laughs> I mean, I think when the match was over. All of us went to some Indian restaurant and we had some dinner, but basically not uh, too much happened. And we were basically, I think we were more tired and relieved than we were happy that he had won. And that, of course, was perhaps also why we ended breaking up uh, afterwards in a way. But uh, the exception being Kasim Janov. I think uh, Kasim decided, OK, he, I mean, yeah, his teammates might be be dull. He was he, he went out uh, went out partying and I think the next morning he came to me okay I'm sorry I, I used all my money could you buy me a sandwich so we went and had a, sa- <laughs> we went and had a sandwich together that was very very nice and such but uh, that's basically the the last memories I have of uh, of of Moscow and uh, it ended obviously incredibly well for us but I think also the story explains why I think uh, both me and Kasim Janov uh, took other offers afterwards and I think um I think, well, the team was basically used up in a way. I mean, don't get me wrong. We are incredibly good friends, all of us. There was nothing bad in it in a way. I think just that, uh, well, it happened a lot of times. Uh, We spent, I mean, for three matches, we prepared three months. The matches also last a month each. So it basically becomes a year together, right, under these kind of stressful conditions. Um, We know each other too well. We have told each other the same stories and such. And uh, it seemed time that, um, yeah. Now it was enough, and then suddenly people went in different directions, at least some of us. Okay, yeah, and for listeners not familiar, of course, uh, Peter has been working with Magnus, as we alluded to, although sat out the 2013 World Championship, and uh, Kashim Janov worked with uh, Fabiano for um, Even kayaking before that, I think, as well, right? Uh, okay, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and a couple more questions, mm-hmm. Peter. So you mentioned sort of being, uh, you know, behind enemy lines in Moscow. Now, obviously, uh, Gelfand himself is a total class act, and you have nothing to worry about in that regard. But 
does anyone on the team worry about some sort of subterfuge, food poisoning when you're in Moscow, stuff like that? No, not at all. I think uh, with Gelfand, we, I mean, sometimes we talked about security. I think here we just get, I mean, Vichy said, okay, I've known Gelfand for basically my whole career. It makes no sense to debate, debate such things. But and you're not we, worried about like independent actors, hardcore chess no, fans? No, I mean, uh, no, I, I mean, I think uh, I have seen this. Uh, Netflix series, the what is it called? Um, the Last Dance, right? And there, Michael Jordan talks about that he got food poisons from independent actors, and that of course can happen. No, I don't think we thought much about that. But um, well, also we we would be eating at random restaurants and such. Uh, but no, I think basically, if people wanted to get to us like that, they they would manage. But such uh, such didn't worry us. That's, I mean, I think what chess players really cares about is that uh, they are afraid that. Um, their let's say that their internet security will be breached so that the opponents can get access to 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 their files um but um, of course we take some precautions with, with with food and such but also you should probably see teams as being well i'm in the in the part responsible for uh, the, the chess work and such but uh Vichy was also there with his wife uh, Aruna obviously and she will be the one caring maybe about his psychological well-being about food and, and things like that so uh, I, I simply don't know much uh, about that but we would generally go out go out eating together but uh, I think no this this was not a worry let's put it like that okay and another question I've wondered about now obviously the primary team the four grandmasters who were there in Moscow are compensated for your extremely hard work uh, people who've come up in the story like Grandmaster Mickey Adams and Luke McShane who sort of do some one-off consulting and help with opening lines, are they generally compensated in, in these situations, Peter? I think it depends. Um, I think some of them has been, others uh, to a lesser extent. Um, but also, I don't know is the honest answer, actually. Um, I mean, I think generally salary is not something you discuss uh, openly. Uh, I would guess um, so. I I I I don't know. I think maybe also it's a it's a right strategy to to do it like that, or at least that's how it has been done in the teams uh, I have I've been to. It's uh, um, well, it's, it's a tricky thing to 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 start talking about. But actually, in the times of Team Vichy, I I mean I might have an idea. I might some of them have have mentioned it for one or two matches. But I cannot just tell you sort of, well, I, I wouldn't, but even, you know, if I wanted to, I would not be able to tell you this guy got that amount of money and so on. And so yeah, forth. no, but, I, I'm not curious about amounts, more about yeah, like... A- of that, but uh, I don't know. I think also maybe at some point, actually during this match, someone was trying to, you know, tell me that they had an idea of the Gunster Grunfeld, but I would like to be paid for it and such. And right. uh, I didn't really have a, a budget for, for, for that. Um, well, there is... Uh, a story in one of the Magnus matches, but I think if if our agreement is, is 10 years, you will have to wait uh, four more years before I tell you. So I hope I remember that time. Okay, yeah. and I, I'll gladly wait. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and of course, the reports of uh, Kasparov offering to help Gelfand, uh, what, and uh, I, I guess it was tied into our, our old friend, uh, a FIDE election. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was your mindset surrounding that during the match? I don't think it, it mattered so much uh, to us in that extent. I mean... I think we heard the rumors, and I forgot if it was public before that Gelfand said no. But I think Gelfand's argument was that you want people who wants to help you positively, not someone who uh, basically wants to um, 
to hurt the opponent in a way. I mean, well, at that point, uh, it was Kasparov who helped us in, in, in 8 and 10, and he was uh, very useful in many ways. But of course, also, with each year passing, he will be less and less out of uh, touch in a way. So I don't think it affected us too much to that extent. But uh, I mean, every kind of rumors, of course, add some kind of stress in these situations. But uh, I mean, we had enough problems already. So this... Uh, I mean, this was not something that uh, made us uh, crack, especially, at least, I can say. Okay. And Peter, generally, I think what is probably my final question, you mentioned early in our interview, you look back at this uh, this match with, with some warmth and some nostalgia, despite a lot of the descriptions being of, of suffering. <laughs> yeah. so, so when you do look back at it, like, what what brings you joy? What What brings you warmth from the match? Well, I mean, well, it's also, I mean, you... Talk about it like suffering, but it was also a lot of uh, great times. I think that, for instance, this three months, I said the first and the last month was actually not too bad and such. But, uh, I mean, as I said, it's uh, a team of people that you spent basically one year together with. So I think mainly you, you miss them as good friends in a way. And whenever there's a tournament, I mean, I really enjoy going for a walk with Cousin Jana for having a beer with... Uh, Ganguly in, in airports and stuff like this and uh, we basically share share good memories and uh, it's clear that uh, it's people that you will be friends with for life despite that uh, you maybe you talk very little with them in a way because you share some things but uh, still having said that I mean the warm memories for me strangely is uh, well it's my job so maybe it's not that strange but it goes around uh, the creative phase of the last week I mean there suddenly we managed to actually turn things around. And, uh, well, that became a lesson for me that um, this pre-match work is maybe difficult and maybe not so necessary while having people who is able to, you know, be creative when it really matters is very important. And, uh, well, you can argue that perhaps this is how it's built in, in Team Magnus at the moment, right? That um, we, we have less intensity pre-match, but then we have a, a belief in that... Uh, we bring together guys we, we, we think can produce uh, stuff during the match uh, and such. But, well, when you talk about the warmth, I, it's mainly connected to to the, the the people. I mean, well, Vichy, Radek, uh, Surya, um, um, Kasim, uh, Arona, and uh, some of the others, Hans-Walter Smith, Erik van Rehm, for instance. I mean, well, there's a lot of personal memories with them, but uh, when it comes to chess, it becomes the... It's basically down to that last, uh, the last week or the last five days. Makes sense. Well, I'm Peter, so. we, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we appreciate you sharing these memories with us. Again, it's a, uh, amazing to hear to you, hear them you, as a chess fan. You're very, you're very welcome, and uh, let's hope that uh, we can talk again in a, in a couple of years when it's the ten year anniversary of uh, that's going to be Sochi, right? You'll have to get another one for for the Chennai match, I'm afraid. Okay, well, I'll look forward to it two years <laughs> yeah. from now. It sounds yeah. good to me. Thanks so much, Peter. You're welcome. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Official one on Twitter, 
at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.